0: If you have a copy of the Word of God, turn please to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, as we proceed in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We have there are 24 chapters, so we have 12 done, 12 to go, making our way slowly but surely through this, this record of our Lord Jesus Christ, inspired by God, profitable to all, and gloriously presenting the person and work of the Son of God. And as we come to Luke chapter 13, we will read only the verses that we will consider tonight, which is the opening five verses. I trust that God will bless the reading and the consideration of the Word this evening. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus, answering, said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish." those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Amen. May God give us receptive hearts to His Word tonight. Let's still our hearts again in prayer. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. We need the Lord to be with us and to give us a sense of understanding as we look at His Word this evening. God, we are thankful for what we've been singing. It has underlined to us the free offer of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There is no excuse to any to stand on the sidelines. There is no reason why men should abide in their sin and perish. We pray that that call would not be unheeded, that no one would leave here in a condition of sin and unbelief. We beg in Jesus' name, bring solemnity to every heart, bring an awareness of divine truth to every soul, and give that power that belongs to God in the preaching and in the result of the Word being preached, that Christ would call sinners to Himself. Shut us in, Lord. Give us deliverance from even the weakness that we have in ourselves, the weakness of the flesh. Please come in mercy extend Thy kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a new chapter, beloved. And at the beginning of this chapter, I'd like to remind you that the scene before us has not changed. Sometimes we have chapter divisions that are placed in locations where there hasn't really been any shift in the occasion. The, the, the scene hasn't changed. There hasn't been a moving to another area. There isn't even much of a shift in what is going on, and such is the case here. We have been looking at the scene of thousands, perhaps, gathered around our Lord Jesus Christ, extensive teaching that has come from Him, and it proceeds, it continues into chapter 13 where our Lord, as He has in the latter part of chapter 12, been further impressing truths that, if I could say it this way, they're more evangelical. Many of the truths in chapter 12 with the crowd around Him are applicable to all. His disciples were encouraged to pay attention, to listen to what he had to say. They were not being accepted in the things that he was teaching. But as we progress to the end, there's certainly more of an evangelical slant, a, an angle toward those that are yet still in their sin, that haven't trusted Christ. And this becomes even more apparent as we come into chapter 13, where it tells us of this particular occasion where, again, they're gathered around him and there's some present with him that tell him, they, they interject, so this isn't the first time, that. People have interrupted the Lord Jesus Christ, and here there's some kind of interruption where a number of ones, those that are gathered, tell him about this matter or bring up this subject of the Galileans that had suffered greatly under the order of Pilate. It appears that at some recent time in the recent past, probably during Passover, pilgrims from Galilee had made their way to Jerusalem into the temple. And there they were massacred by the soldiers that were under the power of Pilate. Pilate, of course, it's not the first time we've had him mentioned. He's he's mentioned just in passing, really, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, as Luke is setting the scene for the, the timing of the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he sets that and frames the timing of this and sets it in a historical context, He makes mention of the fact that Pilate was governor in Judea at that time. Well, this is the next time that we have him referenced, and of course there will be more concerning Pilate that will arise as we approach the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this Roman, Roman governor, Pilate, had given an order to end the lives of these individuals, these Galileans, that were there in a place of worship. We don't know anything more about what happened. We don't fully understand all the motive behind it. We, we do know some things, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But whatever the case, this, this matter arises amidst the, the, the crowd. Someone brings us to the attention of Christ, and He gives attention to it. He doesn't turn away from it. He doesn't ignore it. They get His attention. They bring up this matter. We don't know why. Again, what's the motive? Are they genuinely asking or inquiring? Is there uh, perhaps a desire from some of the religious leaders for Christ to to lead him to make a a public statement against Pilate that might get the attention of Pilate and get Jesus into trouble? Maybe there's, there's some kind of angle where they are raising this issue of, look at what God permitted to happen to Galileans, and all you people you're standing here listening to Many Galileans, and even Jesus, who was known as a Nazarene from the region of Galilee, and the idea then would be that that why would you listen to a Galilean? God's judgment is against Galileans. Why would you do that? That may be the reason, but we don't know. As we look at these five verses, I've titled it in this particular way Learning to Ask the Right Question. Learning to Ask the Right Question. It's maybe not most homiletically, um, how you're taught to title things and deal with the various uh, points that you want to deal with, but, but that was on my mind as I read this. Like the, the, this, this is what this passage really is, is driving home, asking the right question, especially when tragedy strikes. So note with me, first of all, the reality of life, the reality of life. No generation is more aware of tragedy or great tragedies as our own. Global media puts before us information and imagery of wars, genocides, earthquakes, hurricanes, landslides, mass shootings, building collapses, traffic accidents, executions, gang crime, house fires, etc., etc., etc. It's all there, endlessly. You could spend your life looking at imagery of tragedy after tragedy from one part of the world to the other. In addition, we have information put before us, national statistics of heart attacks, cancers, suicides, strokes, viruses, and so on. And faced with all this suffering, we, we, we realize that, that there's something we have to do about some of it. We have these regulatory bodies that, that look at buildings and make sure they're up to code, or make sure that food hits a certain standard so that disease doesn't spread among the populace. All these things are trying to limit some measure of catastrophe or tragedy that may strike the people. But tragedy is a reality of life. For all the measures that we have, whether in America or anywhere else, all the measures to try and limit tragedy do not prevent it. And in the passage before us, we're given two types of tragedy. First, there's the tragedy that is caused deliberately, we might say, in verse 1, where these people that gather around the Lord Jesus told Him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And then you have the tragedies caused accidentally, which is raised by Christ in verse 4, where He mentions the 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. So there's tragedies that are caused, first of all, by a deliberate act, caused deliberately. And here we have this event, as I've mentioned already, that left a mark on the community. Clearly, it's in the the forefront of their minds. We don't know how long ago that it took place, but we are told of, of some of the details that Pilate was involved and his men slaughtered Galileans that were in the place of worship. Probably in Jerusalem, as I've said, for Passover, in the temple, engaging in worship, And such is the the massacre of them, whatever number, their blood mingles with the blood of the sacrifices. That's a very graphic scene that's put before us. And it's hard for us really to place ourselves in the temple during a time like Passover when tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of animals are being slaughtered. But it may be that this group of Galileans were specifically targeted. It wasn't Pilate just... endeavoring to kill random people. Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee and a great religious teacher among the Jews during the time of our Lord, he makes reference in Acts chapter 5. Of course, the scene is, you know, what to do with these disciples and followers of Jesus. And he gives some examples of, of previous men that had arisen and, and how God had dealt with them, how things had transpired. And in Acts five thirty seven he speaks of this man, this man Judas of Galilee that arose in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So he makes reference to this Judas of Galilee who got a, a crowd of people around him, had his own disciples, endeavored to cause trouble. I mean, this was really the issue. The Galileans, some of them, had a tendency to revolt against Roman occupation, And so they were were associated with this kind of effort to to ignore and revolt against Roman occupation in the area. Maybe this is connected. We don't know. Maybe the Galileans that Pilate killed were part of or an extension group of the same kind of mindset. People that were endeavoring to revolt against. and, And Pilate sees this and does what tyrants have done in various times, in various places, if you, can, if you can exaggerate the tragedy, it will suppress any idea of revolt. The leaders have known this for, for centuries. They try to do the most gruesome acts in order to put such fear into the people. It's not, it's not just to keep them in control in, in the moment. It is to suppress any desire to revolt in the future as well. So this is a horrific scene. It's tragic as you read it. Think of the families involved, people that would have heard of it, the the horror that would have entered into the heart of the Jews, the people that would be absolutely uh, offended by the fact that this took place. They didn't wait until they left the temple. I mean, he couldn't even... Maintain a certain decorum towards the place of worship. It happens in the temple during worship as sacrifices are going on. The Galileans perhaps that they thought they were safe there. Maybe had an idea. Pilate won't he won't touch us while we're here. But he did. So you have tragedies caused deliberately. as I say that Christ brings out in the midst of his discussion in his response, and we'll look at it, various aspects of it in just a moment, but just again to point out verse 4, when he tells them how to deal with this matter, he adds in another event. "'Those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem.'" This tragedy was also well known. He's raising it to the attention of the people because they were familiar with it. Siloam was a pool near Jerusalem, and there was near to it a tower, and evidently, again, everyone's aware of the fact that on an occasion the tower fell, and 18 people died on that occasion. Now, what's interesting about the example given by Christ is not only is this accidental rather than deliberate, but it's also less likely to be Galileans. It's probably people who are from Jerusalem or around that area. So he removes any sense that what has happened to the Galileans was because they were Galileans. He removes any sense that there's some kind of ethnic attachment to the judgment of God. He's saying, what about those people? Those people there, again, large majority of them probably from the area in Jerusalem, were they greater sinners? Is it something to do with where people are from? And again, of course, he's eradicating any kind of thought in relation to that. So these are, this is the reality of life. We have this raised in verse 1, this tragedy. You have another raised by Christ. They're distinct in what happens. One's deliberate. One's accidental. But we come to this conclusion. This is a reality of life. Tragedy is a reality. What we're reading happened 2,000 years ago, but we don't have to go, you don't barely go through a day without hearing, or certainly a week without hearing, of some kind of tragedy. Some of them are deliberate. We are horrified. Terrorist activity. I grew up with a whole history of knowing that, and even young enough to, to see and hear of various tragic terrorist events happening in the country where I grew up. You yourself are well aware of various activities similar to that, whether it be things that have happened in bygone era or even right up to date. Tragedies where you can say deliberately someone intended to do harm. But we're also familiar with the things that happen somewhat, we might say, accidental. No one intended it to occur. It wasn't a deliberate effort to try and destroy life or end life or bring harm. It happened, though. It happened. And we lament that as well. This is a reality of life. You you can try to... Put yourself in an existence to avoid tragedy. And you may imagine that your pursuit of the American dream and your success in seizing upon it will shelter you from it, but it won't. You'll be faced with tragedy. We all will. Every last one of us will face it. And there's no avoiding it. And sometimes it comes very close to home. But secondly, the reason for tragedy, the reason for tragedy... And to deal with the reason, of course, our Lord, in what He says here, He gets into their mind. I don't know if they said anything, but look at verse 2. Jesus answering said unto them, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffer such things. And He makes mention of the event that He raises in verse 4. He says, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. Our Lord puts His finger upon the tendency of the Jews that when tragedy strikes, it's tied into, all of the time, it's tied into your moral position before God. There's something wrong with those people. So it's it's as if God, in His governing of all affairs, He gathers... 18 specific people that he has a problem with into one area and causes the tower to fall on them. And those 18 people, God had an issue specifically with them and he is dealing with them. That was the mentality of many of the Jews. They would see tragedy happen in the lives of others and they would say, they must have done something to offend God. That is, of course, implying the idea that they did something to offend God, far exceeding what they ever have done to offend God. Turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. There are all sorts of passages that we could deal with that help us understand something of tragic events and the sorrows of this life. And certainly Job had to face it, and you read the, the language of his friends, and you see that they immediately were jumping to the conclusion that the suffering of Job was a result of sin in his life. And you see this then even in the disciples, John chapter 9. Now set the scene a little bit here. The previous chapter, the Lord Jesus has been addressing religious people. They make accusations about Him. They don't believe in Him. And in the course of what they say, they they show their hand that they believe that because ethnically they came from, because they descended from Abraham, that they had the favor of God. They were born with God as their father because Abraham ethnically was their father. And Jesus He points out very very clearly this is not the case. He tells them that ye of your are of your father the devil. And he exposes them, and they are very upset. Verse 59 says, they took up stones to cast at him. And he leaves the temple. And as he leaves the temple, chapter 9 brings us to what he saw. He sees a man who, rather than being favored by God, clearly is is apparently not favored by God, so, John 9, verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And Jesus' disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, note what they do. They, they don't allow for any alternative. It's, it's a kind of A-B equation here. It's either this or that. Right? Who sinned? Is it, was it the man Or was it his parents? Who's guilty? Why then is he born blind? Was it an error, a sin, a flaw, a wickedness in the man or in his parents? Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Now, let me just say, he's not saying that they never sinned. He's not saying that there's no sin in this man, there's no sin in the parents. What he is doing is dealing with the issue why is he blind? And he pulls from under the feet of the disciples any idea that he's blind because of sin, a particular event or wrongdoing, is the reason why God caused this man to be blind, either in his parents or in himself. Neither have this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, I love this. I love, I love it because of the, the, the little portion that we're given here as well as the whole kind of gamut of, of what's going on here because Christ is going to show that being born and bragging about advantages by birth does not make you any better before God. And so he takes this man who has his lived his entire life under a sense of judgment, where everyone views him as under judgment, whether it be his parents and their sin or his own. That's how people have viewed him. His entire life has been one of being cast out and oppressed as under the judgment of God. That's why he's blind. And so he hones in on someone who is disadvantaged, and as you read through the entire story, he gives him his sight. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, obtains favor with God. He is disconnecting this sense of what to boast in. Christ alone is the answer. But narrowly, looking at it, the disciples, they, they seem to notice. Jesus passed by, he saw a man. And his disciples, they, they see this, this movement, this, the physical locking of the eyes of Jesus on the man. And so as he looks at him, immediately they're thinking, what's he thinking? And maybe we can figure out what has happened here. Because chances are, as they had gone to the temple and left and so on, they had passed by this man many times. And he wasn't like blind Bartimaeus who cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He, He hadn't said a word as far as we're aware. So Jesus looks at him. And the disciples see, but they don't see as Jesus saw. Jesus saw a man with deep physical and spiritual need. The disciples saw a matter of theological inquiry. That's all they saw. This is a question. Let's let's figure out the theology here of what's going on. They didn't see the soul of the man. Let me just, as an aside, say, dear Christian, please, endeavor to see people in their need and not fall into the temptation to turn every event, tragic or otherwise, into a case study of theological discussion. Now, we can learn things, surely, But people are people. They're souls in need. We need to see them, perceive the brokenness, the tragedy of their hearts, and how Christ is the answer for them. Now, this matter of connecting sin with suffering, because that's what's going on here, they see the suffering, they jump to sin right? And it's a delicate one. Because sin does bring suffering. We're going to see it in the very chapter we have entered into. Luke 13 ends with Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem because they killed the prophets and they're going to be left desolate. And there he draws a connection. Their actions, their behavior, Their unbelief, their sin, will have consequences in the desolation of the city. So it's not like it doesn't happen, but we have to be careful about where we apply it. Because the truth of the matter is, unless God has revealed it, we don't know. We don't know why a tsunami hits Southeast Asia and wipes out 200,000 people or more. We, we don't know why mass shootings occur or terrorist attacks are permitted to happen under the governance of God. We don't know. The Bible teaches us care in this matter. The disciples were affected with a misinterpretation of the law of God. In Exodus 20, where we're given the Ten Commandments, we are told that part of the suffering of taking the Lord's name in vain is the visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And many Jews, even to this day, had the idea and possessed the idea that curses pass from generation to generation because of of sin in one particular generation. There, There are people who believe that to this day. And yet that's not what Exodus 20 teaches, and it's not what any passage in the Word of God teaches, that there's this generational curses as they're known. The sins of the father's often go from one generation to the other because of the example of the fathers. And that's different. That's different. It is the example of the parents that passes from generation to generation. Not some unchangeable judgment. The Jews used this as an excuse. They did. They used it as an excuse. When they were under suffering... They would like to excuse themselves, saying, it's not our fault, it's what our fathers did. And our suffering, what we're going through, is because of what they did. And as many of you are aware, it it came into this, this proverb. They had a proverb. It's mentioned in some of the prophets. And the proverb was, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set in age. The fathers eat them, the children suffer. That's the sense of the proverb. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, God sends his prophet to say, you will no more say this, because I am ending this argument once and for all. And you read the chapter, we'll not turn to it, but you read the chapter, and he goes, here's a generation a man who's righteous. And God's blessing's upon him. And then his son is unrighteous, and God's judgment comes upon him. And then he kind of holds each generation accountable, and it's clear the conclusion really is the soul that sinneth will die. That's the conclusion of Ezekiel 18. The soul that sins dies. Not the soul whose father sinned suffers. No. But despite the fact that Ezekiel, I think Jeremiah also, but Ezekiel certainly in Ezekiel 18 dealt with this issue, it still permeates the thinking of the Jews, which is why the disciples asked this question. Who did sin, this man or his parents? God's judging these people, this man rather, and it must be because of something his parents did or that he did in some way. And in verse 3, Christ refutes it. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. What he does... Listen, please, listen up. The disciples are trying to figure out the cause. Their goal is to figure out the cause. But that's asking the wrong question, that's looking at it from the wrong angle. Sin may cause suffering, yes. But trying to figure out each case and then say, well, that happened because the person did this, especially in cases outside of ourselves, is very unhelpful. It results in all sorts of judgment that is really unhelpful within any community or body. We find out news. Think of it this way. You find out news that something has happened to a brother or a sister. And your mind goes, instead of, let's pray for them, that God will uphold them and glorify Himself in them, instead we begin to ask questions. Have they been in sin? Or maybe we're aware of some distinct flaw in their life or something we perceive to be an error in their life, and we connect the two events. And we say, well, I know He said or did whatever it might be, and then this news of, of sickness or something else has come, and we marry the two, and it removes compassion from our hearts. I tell you, it's so dangerous. What I learned from John 9, 3... Jesus deals with tragedy in this way. He says, stop focusing on the cause. Focus on the purpose. What's the purpose? What am I to learn from this? What is God doing in this? What is my response to this? In the instance given... Stop looking at the causes, neither did this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. There is a purpose. The works of God are going to be made manifest in him. Now you start thinking this way, this this is so liberating. It's liberating toward the community because I, I hear of a dear sister or brother that has been afflicted in some way. My mind goes in compassion and in Honor to my God and their God, glorify yourself in this. There's a purpose to bring glory to God in this. God bring it to pass. And with myself, it's the same. And for yourself. Who did sin? Did I sin, Lord? Did I sin? No, don't again. There's a place. There is a place for honest analysis of the heart and the life. But not to stay in a place of morose and discouragement and lifelessness, spiritual lifelessness. You don't look and say, I have sinned and nothing can be done. You bring it to God and He will have a purpose even where He will manifest His glory through that. So, please, underline it in your mind. In suffering, in tragedy, ask not, what's the cause? That's where you go. By nature, that's where you go. By grace, you ask, what's the purpose? What's God going to do here? I know that we we may struggle with tragedy. Various forms of tragedy occur. But God is over them all, sovereign over them all. We've seen that in recent times. Think of the language I mentioned this recently in Exodus 4, Verse 10 and 11, When Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? The disciples looked at it and said, Who did sin? God says, I am over this. I am over this. I'm going to show purpose in this. When you find yourself, like maybe some that were in that crowd, going back to Luke 13, where they were related to the galleons, maybe, maybe some of these galleons were, were cousins of James and John or some far out relation, we don't know. Maybe others that Christ refers to of the tower falling upon the 18. Maybe some in that vast crowd thought that I knew one of those people. And they're trying to understand why. Why? Why? It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Don't ask questions that seek to get to the cause. Ask questions that show and manifest the purpose. To what end? In the passage that we are dealing with in Luke 13, that's exactly what Jesus does. So He says to them in verse 2, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans? because they suffered such things you think they did sin that's that's the kind of the language of the disciples they did sin instead of focusing on the cause he turns to the purpose i tell you nay but except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish there's the purpose there are unknown mysteries in the governance of God over this world, but you can learn lessons from tragedy. And the number one lesson is: have I repented? Am I right before God? Am I ready? Which brings us thirdly to consider repentance for sin, repentance for sin. We've seen the reality of life, the reason for tragedy. Now we look at repentance for sin. As we look at this, of course, this, this is what Christ says in verse 3 and verse 5, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Again, verse 5, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. <laughs> there's, there's, a great, there's a great story in the life of George Whitefield that I think about when I read these verses, that tremendous evangelist. George Whitefield was an Englishman, for those who don't know, and God saved him and made him a mighty preacher. He was an Anglican, but he was more of an itinerant preacher, and he traveled around. And as he Traveled around. Often he would preach not in churches but outside, and, and people would gather around him. Sometimes tens of thousands would gather to listen to George Whitfield preach. He made his way over here numerous times. What, well, seven or eight times? He was over in the United States. He had an orphanage in Savannah. He's, he's well known in church history here in America as well. And thousands, thousands were affected by his preaching. But, you know, like, like anyone who's well known, sometimes. You know, those that are next to them or those that watch them, especially if they have certain quirks in delivery, they will, they will, they will mimic them. They will try to copy them. And, and Whitfield had his own individuals who tried to, to copy, tried to impersonate, let's say, Whitfield's preaching. And he had a squint as well, so you know, had certain physical features that once you would do that, people would know who you're impersonating. And so on one occasion, we're told a story of a man by the name of John Thorpe. And John Thorpe was somewhat skilled in mimicking the preacher. And he is given this platform on one occasion where he is able to mimic before a crowd George Whitfield, And so he does, and he takes his Bible, and he opens it up, and he turns to this text, Luke chapter 13, "'Except you repent.'" He shall all likewise perish. And he's impersonating Whitfield as best as he can, and people are watching on. But it's a wonderful lesson in the power of the Word of God, because as he is in, in mimicking, or impersonating, and, and he is, is making fun of the preacher, the Spirit of God falls right there falls into those that are gathered, falls upon the heart of the preacher and brings a sobriety upon his heart that leads him to Christ. It's wonderful. So every time you read Luke 13, you can remember that event in the life of George Whitfield when people were making fun of him and trying to impersonate him and it led to their conversion. What's this that Jesus is saying before we close tonight? What's he saying? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We must first define repentance. Repentance in simple simple terms means a change. A change of mind, a change of heart. You can't repent without some kind of change taking place, okay? If you say, I've repented, but there's never been a change, you don't understand repentance. Repentance demands change. It demands a shift. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, one of the early churches that were established under his ministry, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, he says that they they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols. They turned away from their false worship to true worship. There was a shift. You could tell. Their behavior changed. Their life transformed. There was a turn that occurred in the mind, in the heart, and manifest in the life. Turn to look or Acts rather, Acts chapter eleven. I want to read a couple passages here. The first is from the the story that Peter gives, the account Peter gives, rather, of what happened in Cornelius's home. And um, that occurs in Acts chapter ten, but in Acts eleven, as Peter is accounting it, of course the big event here is that non-Jews are turning to God, and God is giving the same gift of the Spirit to Gentiles, to non-Jews, as He did to the Jews themselves. And in Acts 11, verse 18, when He's telling the, what happened, He said, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That's what they see happened. But what happened? God granted repentance unto life. Now, I want you to think about that. Repentance unto life. What's being said there? Repentance unto life. The turning brings life. Think of that. Think of that. The turning brings life. What's Jesus saying in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5? Except you repent you shall all likewise perish. In other words, he's saying, repent or perish, live or die. Repentance, true change, worked on by God in the heart, brings change that brings life. Now, I know it's a negative word. It has negative connotations. I say repentance and you think to yourself, I don't want to change. I'm happy how I am. I'm, I'm content with who I am and what I'm doing in my life. But Jesus demands, if you want life, you must change. It is repentance unto life. It is live or die, repent or perish. Repentance is a blessing. Repentance is what every man needs, which is what Jesus is saying. Except you repent, you'll perish. If you don't come to repentance unto life, you die. Now, I hope everyone understands that. That you're not here thinking that in some way you can work your way to God and go to heaven and satisfy God's demands of His holy law by your own efforts. There needs to be a turn, a transformation in your heart. Move on to Acts 26. Here the Apostle Paul's standing before Agrippa and. Acts 26, verse. read from verse 18. What what he's doing is he's telling his story. He's letting Agrippa in on his experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he he does so, he tells his, his story how he was changed, how the change happened in his life. And as he proceeds to tell the story, it goes from the change to the commission, what what God would have Paul to do. Acts 26, verse 18, here's the commission, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. This is the Gentiles. Paul's being sent to non-Jewish regions to open their eyes and turn them, note that word, turn them from darkness to light And from the power of Satan unto God, there's a shift, there's a change, there's a turn. You go from darkness to light. You go from Satan and his, whatever he has deceived you to believe, to God. And what happens then, if you have that turn, experience that turn? That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That is in Christ, set apart "...by faith in Christ. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet or suitable for repentance. Show the change. Show the change." So what's repentance? It's a change. It is a change. Now, I don't know all the change that needs to take place in your life, but change is necessary. If you're not a Christian, you need to change. You need to change. You need to change in your thoughts, perhaps, about Jesus Christ. Maybe you deny that He's the Son of God. That needs to change. Maybe you deny that He died upon the cross for sin. That needs to change. Maybe you deny that He rose literally, bodily, from the dead. That needs to change. Or maybe it's not that you deny that these things happened and a literal man, Jesus, lived on this earth and died for sinners and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. Maybe historically you're in agreement with that, but you don't want to submit to it. Now it's a personal matter. And you would rather live life on your own terms. That needs to change. You don't get to live life on your own terms and have eternal life. There needs to be change. That's no, good change. Christians here say yes to the change. We're glad of the change. We thank God for the change. We meet every Lord's Day collectively to praise God for the change, for what happened in our hearts and lives. We sing because we're a singing people, and we want to sing a new song unto God. Praise unto Him for what He has done, transforming our lives. We want to make the world be aware of this transforming message called the gospel and the fact that others can embrace it as well. So we, so we send missionaries and we, we evangelize ourselves. We try to tell people about the Lord Jesus and influence them, knowing that ultimately we can't change them ourselves, but we, we put it before them and trust that God will use it to bring them to Himself, that they also might experience the change. And Jesus is standing before thousands of people, perhaps certainly a vast crowd of multitudes, and they're bringing this matter of tragedy. What about the tragedy? What about this? And their thought is immediately to think that there's these these must have been great sinners. And he said, "Stop worrying about whether they were great sinners. You're a great sinner, and you need to change. If you don't change, you'll perish." So defining repentance and doing repentance. I want to look at this before we close. There are many misunderstandings about repentance. Some imagine that you can't believe on Jesus until you repent. So they separate it and they suggest that there needs to be this hatred for sin. Before you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, thinking that way, they cr- cr- treat them as two distinct things, and they sometimes then minister like they're two distinct things. So, they go out to the world and they preach judgment and law, and they point out sin, they point out sin, they point out sin, they point out sin. Little or no reference to Christ, just the law. All sin, pointing out sin, exposing sin trying to make people feel the weight of sin, exposing the wrongdoing, you've committed adultery, you've lied, you've blasphemed, you've been disobedient to parents, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And while it's all true, there's more to it than that. It's not just a matter of exposing the sin. They need to be aware of what they are to believe, not just about themselves but about God's Son. What must they believe about Him? And so there has to be a marriage. If you're tempted to constantly bring law and judgment before sinners, you must, you must recognize there's power in the gospel as well. In fact, the gospel is the power of God. Now, the gospel includes the exposure of sin. No one would say for a moment that in Luke 13, Jesus is not preaching the gospel. Now, it's not a full orb gospel. It's not everything involved. But it's a crucial part. And you would say then, because he's preaching the part, it is the gospel. But, but, we have to lead people to a broader understanding, not just of the wrongness of their life, but how salvation is obtained. Others view repentance as a work. So, Since repentance is a work and we're preaching a message that salvation is without works, and we are, okay? The Christianity message of the gospel is salvation without your merit. Salvation is procured by the Son of God. It is a gift. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the merit is Christ, it's not yours. But then they say repentance is a work. Since repentance is something that we must do, we have to turn. Therefore, we don't make any mention of it. We just need to get people to believe in Jesus. And that is wrong as well. Beloved, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. I have seen people and dealt with people who have turned repentance into a work. You know what happens to them? They often look at it and they begin to ask themselves, have I repented enough? So Jesus is saying, come to me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. If any man thirsts, let him come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. And with the sound of Jesus calling them to come to Him, they're analyzing whether they have turned sufficiently from their sin. They're trying to measure it. Well, let me ask you, at what point have you reached sufficient hatred of your sin? How do you measure that? You say, well, I kind of hate my sin. I say, well, well, explain that to me. Tell me what sins you hate. And then I can proceed to show you all the other sins that you've probably forgotten about and expose other areas that you have overlooked and say, oh, you're not even dealing with this, 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 this. You're, you have all these other things that, that you do wrong as well, just like the rest of us. And if I was even more adept, as some might be, they could expose even more sin. How do you know you've, you've worked up enough hatred for sin? You don't! You don't. You cannot know. Repentance, then, is asking for a change, but it's not weighing the change. Right? It's not measuring it. It's not asking you, certainly, to measure it. It is turn, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're believing on Christ truly, then you're, you're, you're turning, aren't you? That's why Paul says to the flip jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And as believing, he would turn. Turn from the old life, the old gods, the old beliefs, and trust in Christ. Your repentance then is a believing repentance. You're turning from sin to God. You are turning away, but onto as well. You're recognizing the sin in your life and you're saying, Yes, it's real, preacher, I get it. I need to repent and I want to turn. As I turn. Where am I turning to? I know the destination. I'm l- looking to Christ, leaning in upon Him, finding Him the port for my soul. This then is the, the purpose of tragedy. It is to lead you to Repentance. Maybe someone's here and you've had tragedy in your life. I bring up that. I just say those words, tragedy in your life, and there's one obvious thing that comes to your mind. It's to lead you to repentance. Except you repent, you'll perish. So the question is, have you repented? Have you turned? Have the tragedies of your life been wasted on you as it were? Has God spoken? And you have missed the message. Has He who Called out from under you all the things that you've tried to find joy and satisfaction in and you're not hearing his call to find your satisfaction in the Son of God repent repent let me say it it's not a bad word It's a life-giving word. It's repentance unto life. It's a good thing. It takes you from darkness and places you into light. It takes you from sin and misery and places you into a place of of rest and contentment, forgiveness of sins, and the removal of guilt and shame for those sins. It gives you hope peace that passes understanding. This is repentance onto life. May God grant it too. Let's bow together in prayer. My friend, I, I hope that this message is not lost on you the most loving person that ever walked this earth was Jesus Christ. And he stood before multitudes and with love incarnate, with more love than we can ever fathom bursting out of his heart. He pointed to the tragedies as real as they are and he said, don't miss the message. Repent, repent, turn, if you need any help in turning from your sin and turning to God, you need me to open the Bible with you, I'll be happy to do so. God, I pray, use thy word, help us. All of us, because we can't avoid tragedy. Help us to get our eyes off the curiosity. Help us to be delivered from the curiosity that wants to know the cause. Help us to ask the right question What's the purpose in this? What's it teaching me? Give us grace, we pray, to surrender to your will, to submit to your sovereign rule, and to turn from our sins unto Christ. Bless us, each and every one of us. Go with those that are downstairs blessing the food provided and grant that tomorrow we'll have an enjoyable time together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.